We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, focusing mainly on verse 6 this morning. There was a nine-year-old girl that once said, I'd rather have peace on earth than pieces of earth. And I think I'd probably agree with that, probably most of you would, but so often it seems like things go the other way around. This past Tuesday, southbound traffic on the 5 freeway was completely shut down at Crown Valley Parkway for about an hour. And our very own maintenance guy, Josh Simonji, back there filming, was stuck in that traffic. According to the Mission Viejo patch, just before 11 a.m., an Orange County Fire Authority captain jumped off the Crown Valley Bridge into southbound 5 traffic and was hit by multiple vehicles. Sadly, it was confirmed this was a suicide. Orange County Supervisor Todd Spitzer said, Incidents like this serve as a reminder the holidays are a very tough time for a lot of people. So I just hope everybody spends a great time with their family and remind yourself and your family just how important and precious life is. Peace eludes us, doesn't it? Peace eludes us. As much as we long for it, as hard as we work for it, as desperately as we need it, peace just always seems to be out of reach. And whether it's on the streets of our cities or those thousands of miles away, whether it's in, within the walls of our homes or within the deep confines of our souls, Peace just has a way of, of dodging our glance, of evading our grasp. The New York Times, in a 2003 article titled, What Every Person Should Know About War, reported, of the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of them, or just 8% of recorded history. At least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century. Estimates for the total number killed in wars throughout all of human history range from 150 million to 1 billion. War is horrific. And I don't know if you've seen any of the videos that have come out of Aleppo of the people who have been suffering there, but it's heartbreaking what is happening in our world. And yet, peace is about so much more than the absence of war. Certainly, when, when forces oppose one another and aggressive moves are made, often violent moves against one another, we would say, there's no peace. We'd also say there's no peace when, when two parties are unable to walk arm in arm together. There's no peace there. When we find ourselves fearful, frustrated, anxious, agitated, we could say there's no peace. When we're haunted by discontentment, by guilt, embarrassment, shame, again, we could rightly say we're not at peace. And we could go on from here. When we're, we find ourselves struggling to make financial ends meet, 
when we find ourselves hungry or thirsty or tired, when we're ill or injured, when we're lost, confused, or disillusioned, when we're hurting, uncomfortable, or in danger, when we're faced with the reality that we're unable to achieve or accomplish what we desire. How about this? When we're confronted with the reality that no matter how good people think that we are, we're still not who we ought to be. We long for peace, but it eludes us. What is it about peace that makes it so difficult for us to achieve? I mean, philosophers have studied this for years and years. Religious leaders, they've pleaded for it. And so many countless people really have they fought for it. They've bled for it. They've laid down their lives for peace. The people of Judah knew firsthand what it was to be without peace. The threat on their doorstep, it was ominous, it was formidable. They had seen the destruction of the kingdom to the north. They had heard of the brutality, of the inhumanity of the Assyrian hand that just swept through the land. Like civil war torn Syria and Aleppo, they were desperate for some word of hope, some reason to think the better days were ahead. Just this past week, Michelle Obama asked Oprah Winfrey, what else do you have if you don't have hope? That's exactly what the people of Judah found in the words of the prophet, the man who spoke for God. We read of his heartening words in Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2, and how welcome these words must have been. He says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Notice the tense of these words. It's not future. It's not that this is, is coming. Even, even though the, the, the light that Isaiah is talking about, it, it wasn't actually there yet. It hadn't actually been realized. This, he's speaking of things that are to come, and yet he speaks of it as if it was in the past or it's known right now. Because God is the one who's going to bring this about, Isaiah's confidence is so great he can speak of it as if it's already happened. The outcome is, is already been secured because God, the one who's absolutely sovereign, the one who's in complete control, the one who always accomplishes what he wills, the outcome is secure because he's the one who said it will be so. To God, Isaiah says in verse 3, he says, you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. It was on the day of Midian in the valley near the hill of Morah that God led a man named Gideon and just a small band of 300 soldiers to do the impossible as they were led to victory over the Midianite and Amalekite armies. It says their numbers were just too, too numerous to count. 
That's what this victory is going to be like, Isaiah says. And he continues, Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah is not speaking of just some temporary reprieve or momentary ceasefire. You know, our nation may experience periods of peace. Periods of peace, but even in those times of peace, we maintain our military power. And we're constantly innovating, right? Trying to figure out new, new offensive and defensive weapons of war. We have warships, we have aircrafts that are ready to scramble at a moment's notice because you never know when you're going to need them. That's not the kind of peace that Isaiah is talking about here. He's speaking of a lasting, definitive peace. One where the assets of warfare, they can just be put away for good because you're never going to need them again. Peace was coming, but how? Why? Why should they expect this peace? What's the reason for this dramatic change in the way the world has worked from the dawn of its existence? Was it free yoga lessons and Tesla for all? Was it mandatory worldwide tolerance? Was it the prohibition of all religions? Some say that would do it. Maybe it was some scientific invention that solves the problem of world hunger. Or maybe it was geneticists. They finally cracked the code that eliminates aging. Wouldn't that be wonderful? They got rid of human disease. Maybe it was the invention of a political system where everyone can finally get behind it. Or... Maybe the election of a president where finally everybody likes this guy. It wasn't any of that. It was none of that. He says in verse 6, The reason for this peace, to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The brilliant light in the darkness. The liberating force of oppression. The solution to ending all hostility would be a child. But not just any child. This would be the one who was, who was born human and yet at the same time a gift from God. He would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and what concerns us this morning, the prince of peace. And I can just see the skeptic saying, Isaiah, really? Are you serious? Humanity has sought peace for thousands of years, and we've been, we're on the brink of this a brutal Assyrian takeover, and now some prince of peace, some child nonetheless, is going to come and save the day? Come on. We've trusted in great leaders before. This one won't bring peace any more than the last one. But let's not be too quick to judge. Because this child, this prince of peace, is going to attack the thing that plagues humanity in a way that's never been done before. He wouldn't bring peace through education wouldn't come through social reform, wouldn't be the introduction of new policy, he'd get to the heart of the matter. See, the problem with peace, the problem of peace has never been solved by humanity. 
because humanity is part of the problem. In, in fact, the heart of the human problem is the human heart itself. Nicholas Black Elk, the famous medicine-slash-holy man of the Sioux tribe who lived 1863 to roughly 1950, traveled with Buffalo Bill, he said this, There can never be peace between nations until there is first known that true peace which is within the souls of men. There's truth in that statement, isn't there? The source of unrest in our world, it it lies deep inside the human soul. And the Bible agrees with that. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There's a disease that lurks deep within the confines of the human heart. It's it's an ailment that developed at the brink of human history and has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. Here's the backstory. In the beginning, we're told that God created. All things came to be at the mere uttering of his voice. That's power. Sand, stars, Seas, seagulls, solar systems, and silkworms, they were all created with one purpose, to display the Creator's magnificence. We read in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world creation exists to bring glory to its creator that's why it's here that's the effect that the crashing waves are supposed to have on you as you stand on the shore that's the result the blazing color-soaked sky is supposed to have as the sun comes soaring over the horizon each morning I think the Discovery Channel got it right when it ran a commercial a while back that ends with, the world is just awesome. It's so true. It's awesome. The world is spectacular. But it's awesome because its creator is awesome. That's why it's awesome. And set apart from all that, Humanity was made special. Genesis 1.27 tells us God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Everything else that was made was designed to point directly to God's glory. Humanity was uniquely made so that it might enjoy its creator and might represent him to the rest of creation. Above all others, humanity was created to give God glory in the highest. Isaiah 43, 7 tells us that all of us were made by him and for his glory. It's incredible. We know why we're here. But all of that got flipped upside down. Flipped upside down in a garden when the very first of our kind dared to ask a question. Why shouldn't we make ourselves to be just like God? Why should he alone 
be the one that receives the glory. There was no doubt that the Creator alone was the one to be worshipped. It was obvious that He alone should get all the credit, all the admiration, the respect, the devotion. But still, a great exchange took place. The glory of the immortal God was traded for images, we read in Romans. Images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Hearts were darkened as people. People traded their created purpose of giving God glory and worshiping Him alone to wrap their lives around all sorts of other things. And in this lies the seed of unrest. This is where peace begins to fall apart. See, exchanging life's intended meaning for anything other than worship of God, even exchanging it to find meaning in so many number of other good things, has disastrous effects. John Lennon was on to something when he first sang, All You Need Is Love. At the very heart of our problem is the love of our hearts. St. Augustine, the great Christian theologian, philosopher, in his uh, confessions, he explains that the problem with humanity is disordered love. The problem is not so much that humanity doesn't have love, it's that the things we love the most are not the right things, or at least are not in the right order. For example, A good reputation is a great thing to have. It's something that all of us should desire. And and I don't think too many people would argue with that. But if your love for your reputation is greater than your love for integrity, well, it's going to lead you to lie to protect your reputation. Money is also a really good thing to have. You can do so many different good things with it. But if your love for money becomes greater than your love for your family, it can lead you to neglect your spouse. Maybe neglect your kids. As you pour yourself into your job, your source of income, more and more and more. Maybe even try out gambling so that you can gain up more and more money for yourself. Your love is out of order. Pleasure is a really good thing. By definition, it's something we enjoy. Yet loving pleasure above so many other things will lead you to make decisions that that are going to potentially harm you, maybe hurt others, and quite possibly take away the enjoyment you're getting out of that very thing. Disordered love is the problem that plagues the human heart. We turn to other things uh, to alleviate uh, what we're supposed to find in God, alleviate um, our fears, satisfy our cravings, meet our needs. And every single one of them end up disappointing us. Manhattan pastor and author Timothy Keller wrote in his recent book, Making Sense of God, he wrote this, if you love anything more than God, You harm the object of your love. You harm yourself. You harm the world around you. And you end up deeply dissatisfied and discontent. That's a brutal reality, isn't it? But it is reality. If you love money or security or safety more than God, you end up worrying about that you don't have enough of it. 
you're not at peace. If you love fame or popularity or power more than God, you end up clawing your way to the top, stepping all over people, stomping them to the ground, doing whatever it takes to get ahead to reach your objective, only to look down from the top to see the damage you've inflicted on the lives of countless people. No peace there. If you love beauty, physical fitness, you love health more than God, you end up striving to achieve or maintain. Well, all the while, those things are slowly pried from your fingertips. And eventually, they're just completely taken away because those things don't last. There's no peace. If you love family more than God, you find yourself bending over backwards to maintain relationships, keeping everyone happy, at least on, on a surface level, loving each other. But when things get rocky, and children don't walk in step, harmony wanes, your pride suffers, frustration rises, blood pressure skyrockets, you end up feeling like a failure. That's definitely not peace. The heart of the human problem is the human heart itself. While our hearts have been designed to worship God and Him alone, we turn to other things. And this wreaks havoc on our inner peace. It leaves us feeling unsatisfied, disappointed, anxious, frustrated, angry, bitter. In some cases, hopeless. We saw that this past week on the freeway. It also harms our relational peace. We end up frustrating and hurting and neglecting and using and abusing others. But the most significant result of disordered love is not inner peace, not the lack of it, and it's not the lack of relational peace. It's the fallout in our relationship with our Creator. Ephesians 2 describes the result of our exchanging our love for God for other loves this way. Here's the result. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Trading your love for God as first and foremost and putting other things in its place, no matter what they are, results in death. It says, following the course of this world, you did as everyone else did, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We're following our heart's desires. We were going for it in life, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The fallout is an unrepairable, at least in human terms, unrepairable tear in our relationship with God. It, it results in this impassable crevasse between us and, and our Creator. We're supposed to have intimacy with Him and enjoy Him and celebrate Him and find everything that we need in Him, and now we're separated. Colossians 1.21 tells us that we were alienated and hostile in mind toward God. Romans 5.10 tells us that we became enemies of God. Ephesians 2.12 says we were separated, having no hope without God in the world. This is not a good place to be. The situation is desperate. The loss is tremendous. The hostility and danger, it's reached a peak 
We ask, why is there no peace? And here is the reason, right here. But that's where the Prince of Peace comes in. A child would be born who would change everything. A child would be gifted from heaven to desperate humanity. His mission would be to reverse the tragic exchange and bring peace between creature and creator. On a crisp, cool night above the peaceful stretch of moonlit fields, star-studded skies were ripped open cascading down brilliant light which engulfed a few lowly and now completely terrified shepherds. And the angel said to them, Luke 2, verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly it says, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What a sight that must have been. The dramatic pronouncement of the arrival for the Prince of Peace. This would change everything. And notice the declaration of his coming. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus would bring that peace that the world needed. And the peace he would bring is one that finds its beginning inside the human heart. And would restore humanity's broken relationship with God. Jesus was the master of peace. In his life, we see him bringing peace to so many people who needed it. He saved and str- he, he, he saved in, uh, the stressed out hosts of uh, a wedding party. They had run out of wine. And Jesus' mother says, what are, Jesus, do something here. And he turns water into wine and brings peace to that wedding. He brought sight to those who had none. Mobility to those who could not walk calm to the wind and the waves to ease the fears of his disciples. He multiplied bread and fish to relieve hunger pains of thousands. He removed the suffering of the woman who had suffered with bleeding for 12 years. He brought health to the sick, life to the dead. And even as he hung on the cross in those final moments, promised paradise to the criminal who called to him for help. And that brings us to the doorstep of what the real peace he came to bring. We would all love for those incidental things that disrupt the peace in our lives to be taken away. We would love for those things to go away, wouldn't we? But the reality is the real peace we need, the real peace that he came for, is peace with our Creator. Romans 5.1 is, is crucial to our understanding of what Jesus accomplished. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we trust in Jesus, notice it says by faith. 
as we trust in this Prince of Peace and the work that he did on the cross by taking our sin, the blame, our guilt, our debt, all of that upon himself and paying for that. As we trust in that work, that's when our friendship with God is restored. Isaiah 53.5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Romans 5.1 tells us, or 5.11 tells us that we can now rejoice in the fact that our relationship with God has been made right through Jesus. We, we can have our loves reordered and now begin to fulfill our purpose for existing by bringing glory to God. And isn't this exactly what was included in the pronouncement in Luke chapter 2? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God getting glory from us and our peace is directly connected. You can't separate them. One pastor said it so well. John Piper said this. He said, God's purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. Let me read that one more time. God's purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. It's a peace that begins where our peace first went sideways. It begins in our hearts and it reorders our loves. It sets them on a trajectory to trust and rely on their creator rather than to fight and claw and freak out with anxiety and lose hope as they trust in themselves or other inferior things. It's a peace that, that realigns them to seek happiness, joy, and fulfillment in the infinitely sufficient beauty and riches of God, rather than things that break down, disappoint, and fail. It leads them to live honorable, God-pleasing lives that actually serve others, bless others, and build them up rather than take, manipulate, abuse, and tear down. Real peace is about so much more than the absence of war. The word for peace that's used here in Isaiah 6 and that's used over 250 other times in the Bible is the word shalom. Shalom describes a peace that reaches far beyond interpersonal relationships. It offers far more than a sense of inner well-being and harmony with others. It's a peace that reaches into the deepest confines of human existence. And it brings us into a good standing, intimate, and joy-filled relationship with God. This is the peace the world is searching for. This is the peace that we're hopeless without. Social programs, education, good policy, good legislation, they all have their place. They're good things. But until the Prince of Peace has his work transform human hearts, they'll continue to find their loves out of order. His is the peace that surpasses all understanding and guards hearts and minds. He is the one who says, come to me, all, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. That sounds good. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. How can he say this? He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And the question for us this morning is, do we know this Prince of Peace? Is your hope in Him? Do you know Him? You can know Him. The Prince of Peace has already come. The mission has already been accomplished. He paid for our sins on the cross. And through him, forgiveness, reconciliation, peace with God is readily available for you and for me. All that is yet to be done is for you to trust him. Would you pray with me? Good, awesome, loving Father, We thank you this morning. Thank you for sending the Prince of Peace. Thank you for sending Jesus, who while we were still sinners, died for us. That we might confess our need for him, trust in the work that he accomplished, and be made right with you, having every single one of our sins washed away. Lord, we don't deserve the peace that you offer. Our hearts Lord, are shaken to the core with gratitude for the goodness you've poured out on us. Lord, for those who don't yet know this peace, I pray that they might trust in Jesus and embrace that peace he offers this morning. That they might acknowledge any misguided attempts to find satisfaction apart from you and come running back to their creator. And God, for those of us who have trusted in you and have had the affections of our hearts drift. We've looked to other things to satisfy. We've worshipped other things. And we found ourselves disappointed and our peace disrupted, Lord. Lord, we, we ask that you would realign our focus on the Prince of Peace, the one who is our only hope. We love you, Lord. Praise you this Christmas for the wonderful act of love it draws our attention to. And we pray all these things. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.